Happy Saturday. It's March 2nd, 2024, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in London. And I'm Michael Haney in New York City. Well, Michael, it's been a difficult week for the news. Trump has won 59.8% of South Carolina, taking home 47 delegates. Not great news for Nikki Haley or democracy. Now it's also bad enough that we no longer have national protection for abortion. Now even our rights to reproductive medicine are imperiled. Thank you, Alabama. Their estate Supreme Court ruling has declared that frozen embryos can be the subject of wrongful death lawsuits, and that has most of the state's five fertility clinics shutting their doors indefinitely. If that's not bad enough, lead-tainted applesauce has worked its way through our food system. And yet, Michael, here on Morning Meeting, we do have some happy things to talk about, I promise. Yeah, we've got a great show. As negotiators in Paris search for a ceasefire agreement for their Israel-Hamas war in Gaza, Joanna Berkman is going to join us to tell us about her conversation with a woman at the United Nations who is 100% optimistic peace can be achieved. Then Dana Brown will join us from New York City with his report on how and why one of the city's great institutions, the Media Power Lunch, seems to have seen its last days and why its passing is made all the more visible at Michael's in Midtown. Then Linda Wells, the editor of Airmail Look and knower of all things wellness and beauty related, looks at an extremely unhealthy behavior way too many of us engage in, Ashley, lying to our doctors. Yikes. So Ashley, where would you like to begin today? Let's get Joanna Berkman on here to talk about the fascinating genocide expert at the United Nations. Joanna is a writer at large for Airmail and a frequent guest to Morning Meeting. Welcome, Joanna. Hi, great to be here. Nice to see you. So Joanna, there's been a lot of talk about a possible ceasefire in Gaza and the UN, of course, is at the center of this. And there's one character in particular at the UN who has been sitting in the hot seat, as you write in your View from Here column this week. So who is Alice Duritu? Sure. Alice Duritu is from Kenya, and she is a mediator of conflicts all over the world. She has a background in working in human rights, and she's mediated conflicts all over Africa, as well as in Europe. And she is the first female undersecretary general in her role, and she is the special advisor on the prevention of genocide. And how was she involved in this conversation around what is and is not genocide? I mean, is that something that a person is able to decide or what's the metric we use to assess that? Sure. She is an advisor on the topic to the UN Secretary General. But no, it is not up to her to determine what is and isn't genocide. That really is up to the courts. It's called the ICJ and it is in The Hague and it is a court made up of justices from different parts of the world. And it is up to them to determine once cases brought to them if genocide has been committed. Typically, those determinations are made years after the end of a conflict, and it takes years generally for those kinds of rulings to be made there. They are not snap judgments, to put it mildly. And since the creation of the UN, there have only been three conflicts which after the fact have been ruled genocides. And those are the Holocaust, which resulted in the murder of six million Jews between 1941 and 1945. And then the 1994 genocide against the Tutsi in Rwanda, in which 800,000 Tutsi were murdered by the Hutu majority. And then there was the Srebrenica massacre of 1995, in which 8,000 Muslim men and boys were murdered during the Bosnian War. And as you can see, 
see it doesn't necessarily have to do with the scale of murder. You have everything from 6 million down to 8,000. But really, one of the key factors that the court looks at, it's the intent to commit the genocide, to diminish the population in whole or in part, and that there was a lot of planning in order to commit that kind of murder. So part of Doritu's responsibilities include doing what she can to prevent genocide from occurring in the first place. So what does her job look like at the moment, sort of the day-to-day functionality of it? She, as you might imagine, travels very frequently all over the world. And really, her portfolio is global. So while a lot of people here in the West are paying a lot of attention to the Israel-Hamas conflict, and there's also, as we know, a lot of attention paid to the Ukraine-Russia conflict, she's looking at conflicts all over. I think right now she's in Tanzania. She puts out statements on Sudan. She puts out statements on a variety of conflicts, very few of which get the kind of international focus that the one currently in the Middle East does. It's not because they are necessarily any less violent. Some of them are on a much larger scale, in fact, in terms of deaths. But these are the conflicts she and I discussed that sort of why are so many of the conflicts that she puts statements out about given so much less attention? There's nobody really protesting in the streets and on college campuses about what is happening, for example, in Sudan right now. She's kind of looking at it all. And obviously, there's really a spotlight right now on Israel Hamas. And so she has put out a number of statements. But there were a number of people starting, in fact, from within the UN itself who were not happy with the statement that she put out going back to October when the war began with Hamas's invasion of Israel. So Joanna, what did that statement say and what was the reaction that she received to it from her colleagues at the UN? Sure. What she said to some seemed rather even-handed. She said that the hostages had to be released and that there needed to be an immediate ceasefire and that all possible measures to protect those who are most vulnerable needed to be taken. If you remember back at the time, within almost immediately, there was a very large chorus in the Middle East and around the world just asking for a ceasefire, as if the hostages no longer existed, no longer were important, and she demanded a release of the hostages as well as a ceasefire. And I think that was the beginning of this sentiment against her. There was a group that felt she was not putting enough focus on what was happening to the Palestinian people when Israel did, after a period of time, begin to retaliate. That was their number one concern, and they felt she was not doing enough to speak out against that. And so what happened is they began a letter at the UN and ultimately on December 9th, which is an important date because it was the 75th anniversary of the UN's adoption of the Genocide Convention. They put out anonymously a group called Concerned Citizens of the International Community posted a petition on change.org demanding that she resign and saying that she had failed to acknowledge Israel's violence against the Palestinian civilians. And over time, more than 20,000 people signed the signature. That said, it's important to note just two days after they put out this petition, another group calling itself Humans for Human Rights filed their own petition defending her and saying that she had been working tirelessly to advance the release of the hostages and for the cause of peace between Israel and Gaza and working behind the scenes to try and end the conflict, thereby protecting Palestinian civilians or seeking to. 
obviously there's going to be a lot of controversy around this issue, right? Many different opinions, but does it really impact her day-to-day work with the UN and impact that that work is having on the ground in Gaza? Or is it just a lot of noise in the press? It's a great question. I think what I'm hearing, it's been a very charged time at the UN. It has been a very difficult time. She and I did not discuss in terms of day-to-day friction, but I know there's a lot of friction currently between the large group of countries that are agitating against Israel at the moment and Israel itself. I think there's a lot of division right now. She does travel a lot, so she's in all different places all the time, but I think it has been really difficult. And she now has put Put out two more statements and the division in the Middle East, just as we're seeing in our own communities and college campuses, is really dividing people here. I think it's having a dramatic impact at the UN. So it continues to be a very divided moment. Joanna, as you astutely noted, the killing, the war and the scale of violence is overwhelming and the desire for people to declare genocide, as you note in the story, that comes later. And that's just how it has to work, because if there's got to be a body of evidence proof. Despite all this, Doritu, as you note in your story, she's actually a very positive, hopeful, hopeful person. And she has mediated countless conflicts. And she, as you report, she is... 100% positive that a solution can be reached here. Why does she feel that way? Sure. Yeah, that's one of her many terrific qualities that despite all that she has seen firsthand, she is very optimistic that this conflict can be resolved. And I think it's because she has been involved in horrific conflicts that have gotten resolved that she feels this too that we, we, we must not forget that this too will come to an end, that the sooner that happens, the better. And she shared with me an anecdote from the Gakaka courts, which were in Rwanda. And she talked about how people apologized to people whose family members they had murdered. And she told me the specific anecdote about a man who confessed to a woman that he had killed her son. And he was so remorseful. He spent so much time over a period of years demonstrating his remorse to this grieving mother that in the end, the mother adopted him and he became her son, thereby kind of healing them both, which is so hard to imagine. And it's something that she knew intimately. And she looks at that anecdote and holds it out as an example of what human beings are capable of doing. And that even after wartime, there can be full reconciliation. And she also told me that when you are negotiating ends to conflicts, you always bring everyone to the table. That's something that is a bit controversial because do you really want people who are designated terrorists at a peacemaking table, many people do not. She is of the view that you must include people in conflicts who are the aggressors and who have initiated and are looked at in that way because they are the ones who can bring war and that those people need to be included in order to bring about an end to war. And so I think she has seen such a variety of conflicts play out in such a variety of brutal ways. And she has hope that this too can be resolved, just as those have been. The specifics will always be different. And she also spoke about being a woman in that setting and how rare that has been. And that because war is often a man's business, it's the men who resolve the wars. And it's rare that we get women at these negotiating tables at the end. 
and how important that it is that we do that. For someone who's got to balance horrific things, she leaves you with a true sense of optimism, as does your column this week. Yeah. And that's why it's so ironic, this movement to oust her. She's sort of this real beacon of hope in such a challenging situation. And so it'll be interesting to see how it continues to play out, what happens in Rafa, what happens with Doritu, and how this conflict, how and when it specifically comes to an end. Well, Joanna, it's a terrific profile. You're shining a light and understanding on how this is unfolding at the UN and what the future holds. Hopefully something good. It's a wonderful story. So thank you for bringing it to our attention this week. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Joanna. Talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. God, Michael, I'd love to read her memoir, wouldn't you? Yeah. I mean, sounds like an incredible woman, one of those people that you didn't know existed, but are happy they are out there working to solve things. Yeah, no kidding. Well, speaking of solving things, Michael, it's lunchtime, at least somewhere. And the power lunch that you and I, I think, once relied on, right, as a means of getting through the workday has completely evolved in the past few years due to COVID. Dana Brown, one of our fabulous columnists and a writer at large for Airmail, is here to take us into the epicenter of this at Michael's in New York City. Welcome, Dana. Hi, Ashley. Hi, Mike. Dana, your story brought me back to the golden days of media. And as I was thinking about the restaurant Michael's, all I could remember is the last time I was there, I think I was sitting next to like maybe Rose McGowan at like a power woman lunch hosted by Joanna Coles. So that's obviously dating me and also dating Michael's. But for those who have never been, tell us exactly what this place is. You're totally right. I think the last time I went there, Ashley, was back in the days when I had a expense account, which were really, really good old days. Michael's, it's sort of the sole survivor of the kind of media power lunch that really began, I guess, in the 80s and peaked in the 90s, ran into some trouble in the aughts before sort of dying completely out. It was Michael's, which is on 55th Street, Four Seasons on Park Ave. And in the 90s, there was a restaurant called 44 in the Royalton. That was sort of this fabled spot, especially for the magazine business. And they're all gone except Michael's. Michael's is sort of the media power lunch hotspot. It's the last man standing, if you could call it that. It's sort of leaning or limping into the future. It seems to be not really the last man standing, though. The crowd, as you know, kind of the last man standing with the aid of a walker, perhaps. Yes, to put it bluntly, what was surprising to me, and Michael's was, you would go to Michael's on a weekday back in the day, and it would be packed from the front of the room to the back. It's this big room. It's this sort of endless room that they kind of open up and it's a very bright, white, nice space, but it would just be packed. And if you weren't a big name, you were sitting in the back of the restaurant or Siberia, as they used to call it. And you would see publishing giants. You would see well-known magazine editors and book publishers and authors and was packed with that. So I went there. I hadn't been there in years. And I was curious about the power lunch and the media power lunch and the media hotspot. So I went a few weeks ago and I was actually surprised surprised with how crowded it was. It was surprisingly packed. But as Mike put it, the crowd is sort of aging along with the dining room and the menu. Well, as you put it and so brilliantly in your piece, I'm just going to quote you. The lunchtime crowd resembles a casting call for a reboot of Cocoon. So that's all I'm going to say. Is that going to get me canceled, Mike? <laughs> what, for being ageist? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of old now myself, right? So I feel exactly. like I can get away with it. Like I could almost be in a Cocoon reboot. So that's how I sort of justified it, at least in my own head, but we'll see. But Dane, I think the thing about these Four Seasons and 44, again, that media 
power lunch. I mean, let's just go back. Like Keith Kelly, the New York Post used to print seating charts of like the grill room at the Four Seasons or who had what table and who was sitting where. It wasn't just about the food and the place. It was about, it meant a literal and metaphorical seat at the table of power, right? It's gone now. It's funny. I think it's part of a larger conversation that I know you and I have had before and anyone who is in New York's creative class has had, which is at some point in the last 20 years, the creative class in New York was replaced by money. Full stop, right? Money took over. Wall Street took over. The bankers took over. The finance bros took over. Money runs this city now. Culture does not run this city It's sad to say, I hate saying that. And I know I've spoken to some people who disagree with me who say, no, 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 it's not. But I really don't think so. At some point in the aughts, money just took over from the creative class the New York's creative class, which is what we're talking about here. We're talking about publishing. We're talking about advertising, book publishing. We're talking art directors. We're talking creative types like they were the most interesting people in New York City. They made this city hum. They made this city work. They made very good livings. And then all of a sudden it just completely reversed in the creative creative class in the city just got the shit kicked out of them. Money took over. And the creative class was like interesting. It was much more balanced between men and women than I think other industries like politics or banking was. So you had a much more interesting room with men and women. They were better dressed because in order to be successful in media, you kind of had to be pretty well dressed. You had to have a big personality. You had to gossip. Like everything that made it interesting has sort of disappeared. And so we don't have them anymore. But I also think there's more to it. I mean, I think we were all so rooted in Midtown, the media business. I mean, with the exception of Wall Street, most businesses were, but especially media. I mean, all the publishing and magazines and Madison Avenue and advertising, everything was right there. So you could have a place that was walkable, that was close. That has changed. I mean, companies are everywhere now. Condé Nast moved downtown 10 years ago. So part of it is, I think, geographic also. I'm sorry to say, but like media is just completely fucked right now. I mean, you look at, all you have to do is read the headlines. I mean, it's nothing but layoffs and layoffs. And there just isn't that kind of money anymore. We used to have corporate credit cards that we weren't afraid to use. And we went out to lunch every day and it was just sort of expected of us. And I don't think that exists anymore. I think those days are gone for now, maybe forever. You guys are so depressed now. Did I just depress you guys so much with that like sad rant about? Honestly, Dana, like I never thought I would be craving the French fries at DB Bistro Modern, but here we are. Oh, DB, that burger, that foie gras burger. My God, it was fun. I mean, we went out to lunch every day. We just did. You're a veteran of lunches. You were told to go out and eat lunch and spend it and take writers. And that was a great pleasure. And when I listen to you, I think about also like this lineage of the table. And like it goes from sort of like almost like the Algonquin round table to the Mad Men era to then this like late 70s, early 80s. And you're exactly right. It, money just <laughs> smashed. Bulldozed. Bulldozed. Smashed it all. Just crushed it all. And I'm sorry, Bill Ackman is not an interesting guy. Like I see him at a table. Like, I don't care. Like he hasn't done anything that I care about. He hasn't painted a painting, written a book, edited something, made directed a movie. It's just, it's like, and those people, you can't see them anymore. As a man who, about town back in the day, any power lunch memory come to mind, Dana? Glorious or inglorious bastard that you are? At one point, Mike, when we were still at Times Square, when I was at Vanity Fair, I decided that I was going to have lunch at Il Cantonori every single day. And it was so easy to get to on the subway. So I made Il Cantonori my spot. And I was probably there three or four days a week. Great. And I'd go and I'd drink a bottle of Chianti and eat a piece of veal. And I think I gained like 30 pounds over the course of that like two or three year period. I remember taking when there was the crash, the 2008 crash, and everyone was talking about like, oh, New York's going to go back to like it was in the 80s and they're going to be empty buildings and crime 
time and all this stuff. And I had my friend Adrian Gill was in town and we were talking about this. We were talking about like, well, what's going to happen to New York after this crash? As we know, by the way, nothing happened to New York after the crash, except it like got richer weirdly. I don't know how that all worked out. He said, like, I'd love to talk to someone who was around in the 80s who knows about crime in New York City. And I was like, oh, I've got just the guy. And so I somehow reached out to Curtis Sliwa. And for anyone who doesn't know who Curtis Sliwa is, just please Google it. And the thought of me and Adrian Gill having lunch with Curtis Sliwa at Il Cantonori. So I reached out to Curtis Sliwa and I said, can we buy you lunch? And so we walked into Il Cantonori with Curtis Sliwa, who put on a suit for the thing, but was still wearing the red beret. And we sat there as he told us what was going to happen to New York out. It was just going to slide downhill in the 80s and all this. As he sat there sort of eating a plate full of pasta with truffles and tiramisu for dessert. And just that was one really wonderful memory of the Curtis Sliwa lunch at Il Cantadori. And then he got in the Big Apple car that you had waiting for him. I'm sure we took very good care of Curtis. Well, Dana, when you come to London, I'm going to take you out for one of our UK power lunches because rest assured, this tradition is still alive and well in the UK, including with that bottle of Chianti you mentioned. I'm so in. I might get on a plane very soon, actually. Amazing. Well, Dana, love your columns, plural. We can't wait for the next one. Lord knows where it's going to take you. We will be here to talk about it. We'll see. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you, Mike. Lunch is on me, Dana. Oh, I love it. Okay. Bye, guys. Michael, I have to say, I don't miss those lunches. I really don't. I miss having an expense account where I got to eat, basically, thanks to Cy Newhouse. But I think someone who does know power lunches and probably had more than a few is Linda Wells. Okay, Michael, sound the trumpets. A new issue of Airmail Look is here. And it's fearless, fabulous editor Linda Wells. Linda was the founding editor of Allure magazine. She's the beauty and wellness columnist for Airmail. And yes, the editor of Airmail Look. Welcome, Linda. Thank you, Ashley. Hello, Michael. It's a new day, Linda, but it's the same old us, and we have a new issue of Airmail Look, and ooh, do we have a lot to talk about. Where would you like to begin? We have so much to talk about. I feel like we've kind of got this little inside theme going on here, and it's basically about butts. Could we say that? Is that fair? Posteriors? Yeah, it all works. So we have a very funny and wise story, as always, from Brennan Kilbane about BBLs for men. And if you don't know, that stands for Brazilian butt lift which is sweeping the nation. The incidence of these procedures is growing. They're not actually lifts. They take the fat from one part of your body and they put it in another part of your body. So they'll take liposuction out of, let's say, your abs or your love handles and inject it into your butt to give you a nice perky bubble butt. So now men are getting in on the action. So Brennan went to Miami where this is very flourishing, this procedure, and he had a consultation. He stripped down. And the rest is in the story. Indeed. Michael, aren't you relieved to know that you too can have this procedure done? I'm more of a BLT guy, not a BBL guy. Fair enough. Once again, just over here at the bar watching and listening and learning. And trying to stay as far away as possible from this whole subject. Okay, Michael. In terms of butts, I guess I'm just going to jump right into it because Ashley has a story about a lot of nudity these days. I knew she was at a spot. But anyway, why don't you guys talk about how Ashley spent her time? Ashley. So someone went on a vacation 
And it was a nudist vacation, it turned out. I don't know whether she knew that when she was going, but she discovered that it was very much a part of the whole experience. And that was Ashley. Okay, well, I should just preface this by saying I went on a family-friendly ski holiday in Austria, but it turns out that even the most family-friendly ski hotels in Austria have somewhat of a nudist component because of the sauna culture there, which is something I failed to completely understand until I went there. But uh, we were invited to this place. It's called the Kralerhof by my dear friend and neighbor, Karine, who is Austrian. Otherwise, this would not have ever come onto my radar. And the fascinating thing about it is like in the morning, you're having your smorgasbord breakfast and you're going out to the slopes and the kids are going to the trampoline room or to the pool. But in the afternoon, instead of like the apres ski ritual being Vov Clicquot at Ajax Tavern, all of the adults go to the spa. And the spa means you get naked, sit in a very hot Finnish sauna while a sauna meister pours hot water onto the coals, flings a towel around and you sweat everything in your body basically out into oblivion. And you do this in the company of all these naked strangers. So to me, it was just a weird sort of subculture is the wrong word, but it was just a very strange cultural tradition to participate in. And I thought that it would be interesting to write about it from the perspective of body positivity and what that means. Because as Americans, the idea of hanging out naked with friends or strangers, it just does not compute. Are you sure you weren't in someone's backyard in Park Slope or something? I mean, this is just like creepy crawly. It's a nightmare. It's a whole nightmare. We're going to be there in our snowsuits in the sauna, zipped up with the hood over our head. Absolutely. I'd be like in one of those rubber outfits, like trying to maximize the sweat and staying completely covered. And everyone was blase about it, right, Ashley? Well, that was the weird thing. It's like, I'm trying not to giggle, right? Because I'm obviously a child. But for everyone else, this is just part of the course and part of their daily life. And more importantly, it's sort of a community ritual. Like in Austria, in many communities, people go to the sauna on a Saturday. Like it's just the thing that they do for fun. And when they're not sitting there sweating naked among their neighbors and friends, they're playing cards or drinking tea or whatever. And I was fortunate that I had an Austrian friend who kind of told me about this entire universe. But it was fascinating. And I think one of the reasons that I decided to go headfirst into it and just go for it is because I did not want to be seen as the prudish American, which of course I am. So it was a bit of a leap of faith. But after spending a week there doing this, like people can change, it turns out. And I'm not an exhibitionist today by any means. Clearly I'm wearing a sweater while we record this podcast. But it did make me think differently, not only about my own body, but about the bodies of other people. And it made me realize sort of how much we all have in common. Anyway, so that's the story in a gist. She's come a long way from Kansas, listeners. Long <laughs> way from Kansas. We don't have the sauna out goose ceremony in Kansas, I'll tell you that. In Missouri, you wear turtlenecks to the sauna. <laughs> I can attest. Okay, now, Linda, your story in the issue is fantastic. It's about medical grade skincare, which is something I thought I needed until I read your piece. What is that all about? It seems like everybody wants to jump on this bandwagon of it's science facts, it's medical grade, as if that gives their skincare products a better performance, more active ingredients. And it's actually a fallacy. It's a marketing term. If something is really medical grade, then it's a prescription product. But a lot of these products are trying to really get on the whole excitement around dermatology and all the procedures that are done in the dermatologist's office that cost a lot of money. So people are trying to carry that home and manufacturers are trying to get some of the gloss of those more active and more efficacious products into their armamentarium. So that's, it turns out that medical grade is just another marketing term. It doesn't mean anything. But in the process of reporting the story, I discovered something that really is very exciting and it's called DNA repair enzymes. This is something that was discovered by scientists who won the 2015 Nobel Prize. And then a chemist took that technology and added liposomes to the DNA repair enzymes 
so that they could get into the skin. And now they're in a lot of different skincare products. None of these products are sexy. You look at them and you think, oh, I don't really want that. Packaging is not attractive. The names are not interesting, but they are really effective. And what they do is undo some of the damage caused by the sun and by pollution. So they help the skin repair itself. So they're really, really important. And one dermatologist I talked to, Ellen Gendler, said, after you wash your face, put that on and wear sunscreen and use a retinol. And that's all you need in your routine. It's also really hopeful, I think, Linda, that there actually is something that can undo some of the damage that so many of us have done to our skin through sun exposure over the years. Not all of it, of course, but... Right. Particularly those people who spend their vacations at nudist colonies. I mean, that's something to deal with. Hey, I was mostly inside. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Pictures will... I'll be going out soon. And then, Linda, you have a column in the issue of, as we call it, Big Airmail this week. That's really fascinating to go. It's about the lies or untruths that we tell our doctors. What did you discover? It turns out that 60 to 90 percent of people lie to their doctors on their intake forms. And what they mostly lie about is alcohol consumption, cigarette smoking or vaping, drug use, their weight, but of course that's going to come out very quickly in the exam, and their nutritional habits, their exercise. They lie about all these little things. Then I talked to plastic surgeons, and it turns out that people lie about having other procedures. They'll look their plastic surgeon in the eye and say, I've never had a facelift. And the plastic surgeon sees scars by their ears. It's like, well, what are these? And they're like, oh no, that was something else. And it's amazing. The doctors have to do so much work to make sure that the patients aren't lying so that they can proceed safely. And one doctor I spoke to said, it's just a matter of course that in training they learn when someone says they drink six drinks a week, you just double it. Everyone underestimates and the doctors then double it. So it kind of is a disincentive to telling the truth because then they'll think you really have a problem. Linda, what I liked about this is, number one, I think just the phrase exam in medical exam, we all want to get a gold star, right? So it's like, if you have to say like, I'm doing something bad or I've had this thing that's a failure. But what I thought was really eye-opening is then when patients are called on it or suspected of it by their doctor, the difference between women and men and how they respond to that. Tell us about that. Well, women, when they're asked about it, are you really drinking six drinks a week or whatever? Are you really exercising four times a week? They'll start to tell the truth. Women will immediately have that opportunity to say, okay, actually, this is what I do. So doctors learn that the more they talk to the patient, the more they can get the truth. Men double down on the lie. They'll just dig in their heels and say, nope, that's the truth. And that's what I'm choosing to say. So it's fascinating, the different behaviors. So what you're saying is most men in the examining room are Donald Trump. Just double down on it. (laughs) Right, exactly. Exactly. They go hard. Yeah. And let's just hope that that stays in the examination room and doesn't permeate the rest of their lives. Linda, one thing we should talk about. After we worked on this issue, I went out and bought these ugly DNA enzymes, but there's also a lot of good shopping in the issue, right? Like we've got some products that you can't go through spring without. There are definitely the concept for our product um, grouping this month is the best products for minimalists. So let's just say you don't want to be contoured and powdered and do a 12-step skincare program. We have really great tested, simplified products that do a lot. For in one fell swoop. So lip products that double as lip balms that also add color and tinted moisturizers and all sorts of things that are just really good staples. And it's just a great way to live. And we really labor over this and we try everything. And these are the products that we love right now. Well, Linda, thank you so much for joining us. And thanks for this great issue of Airmail Look. You can get it at airmail.news backslash look. One more time, airmail.news backslash look. And it's just pure delight. Yeah. And thanks, Ashley, for bearing all. And thank you, Michael. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> thank you, Michael, for keeping 
keeping your clothes on. Nothing more to add. (laughs) Michael, I could kind of see you with a BBL, maybe. Is that TMI? Am I going to get fired for saying that? Mm, Listener, this is me speechless. I just... (laughs) You spend too much time being normalized by Austrians about nudity with your friends. So anyway, let's just move on. There's only one place to discover a global snapshot of the current cultural scene. Airmail's Arts Intel Report. Our international research tool for what to do and where and when to do it is user-friendly, continuously updated and meticulously curated. Arts Intel is handy at home, on the road and when you're planning your next trip. It also includes indispensable lists of restaurants and hotels in key cities around the world, recommended by our well-traveled experts. Explore Arts Intel at airmail.news slash arts hyphen intel and be sure to sign up for our Week in Culture newsletter, which is published every Wednesday afternoon at ml.news slash WIC. I'm Chris Garrett, ML Deputy Editor, and I never leave home without it. Bon voyage. Okay, well, Michael, it is the weekend. I know you've got something marvelous you can recommend to us. I do. And it occurred to me uh, the Oscars are less than 10 days away, basically. And a lot of people have not seen many of the films that are nominated. And know it's because I recently watched uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. And in sort of talking about it out in the world, many people have now seen it as well. So I feel got to advocate for seeing this film by Martin Scorsese, starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Lily Gladstone. You know the story of it based on the David Grand book about how the, the Osage tribe was disinherited from its uh, oil wealth down in Oklahoma. So it is called Killers of the Flower Moon. Powerful story. Lily Gladstone's amazing. Probably most likely to win the Oscar. And it is on Apple right now. And you, my dear, what can you recommend? Have you seen Past Lives? Yes. I think I spoke about Past Lives. I loved it. I just watched it. And? Well, it's the kind of thing, like, if I were just reading the script, I wouldn't get it. It's one of those movies, I think, where it just shows the importance of an auteur, a director with a vision and a concept for the film, because it's the kind of thing on paper, it would really fall flat. Like, there's very little dialogue. There's not a lot going on. But again, this is like the cinematography, the photography, the acting, like the music, like it all, the score, it just, it all comes together in this really incredible way and and shows like the relationship between these three characters. It's just, it feels like something you've never seen before. And it's really great, pretty incredible filmmaking, I thought. Yeah. For those of you who haven't seen, we encourage you to see it. That's the point of recommends here. It tells a story of a young woman of Korean descent who's came here as a child and now she's trying to become a writer and she's Got a boyfriend who's a New Yorker, but then she comes in contact with this boy she had a crush on when she was a girl who's still in Korea, and they come back together. And you're right. If you would read it as a story, be like, mm, it's okay. But it is the beauty of the direction, the setting, the pace. It's so poetic and lovely to watch and just to watch the, the quiet moments between them, as well as just the visual uh, poetry that she puts on the screen. I think of that conversation of the three of them at the bar towards the end of the film, which was so lovely. And it just, just lingers in your mind long afterward. Yeah. Now, on the other hand, we have The Morning Show. Okay. Have you seen this? I just finished the new season. Yes, I finished it. Your link there is Greta Lee, who stars in Past Lives and now in The Morning Show. Yes, finished it. Tell me, let's discuss. I think Greta's the best thing about The Morning Show. I'm sorry to say. I love the first season because it's sort of nostalgic in the way of Dana's story, right? It takes us back to this period of morning television in which everybody really cared about it. And I thought it was really fun and interesting and kind of campy and whatever. But this season, I was like, what on earth is going on? It's like, how can you make a sex scene with John Hamm fall flat? And yet it does. Like, to me, it just felt like they trotted out every single cliche and worked their way through them. Jennifer Aniston, I think, is very effective and she's great in this. 
Reese Witherspoon to a certain extent as well. But I just, the writing on it, Michael, I'm sorry to say. Anyway, I was really disappointed in it. It felt just like it was cliche after cliche after cliche. I think it does a very good job of moving the pieces around on the chessboard, right? You know how the drama is going to unfold. It becomes this boardroom drama and media and all this. It felt a lot of it like it just was, it didn't go as deep and maybe it's not fair to hold it up to succession but it left me feeling like a little like there was that fourth dimension that it wasn't cracking for me it's a good way of putting it yeah well we want to thank you all so much for joining us we wish you a marvelous weekend michael will you please read us out absolutely but i will be fully clothed for this Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly, but we will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music, but most most of all, thank you again for joining us.